Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Jan Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to a highly conversation. If questions around generating alternatives and other possibilities of environments for art to foster intrigue you, make sure you listen to this conversation. Because we are hosting Fritz Haig, whose Salmon Creek Farm, a resettlement in a former hippie commune, provides for living, gathering, growing, and being an overall art-sustaining environment. Fritz studied as an architect and had nourished global attention as an artist with his edible estates. These, in many of their incarnations, had to do with growing crop and taking yield in otherwise unutilized greenery. Engagement with land and plants is as important as engaging with people, since Fritz has always been bringing people together in action, in work and in exchange. The Sundown Salon, a series of meetings in a geodesic dome in LA, or the collective rug-making sessions titled Domestic Integrities are a few of the projects that come to my mind. And I see the Salmon Creek Farm as the culmination of all these questions and more. So we start our conversation on daily life, how an ordinary day passes at Salmon Creek. I guess what I've realized most recently is that the life pattern here is really settled into a seasonal rhythm in a way that you just wouldn't in a city or in my previous life, which was more urban and, and itinerant, moving around a lot. Here I'm much more settled, I'm here all the time. And of course now, really, literally here all the time. So it's very seasonal. There's things I'm always doing. There's always a lot of projects and carpentry projects and building things and things that you start and then finish no matter what the season is, but it's very seasonal. So tomorrow we're getting our first apples down and pressing them into juice that will turn into our apple cider vinegar. Apple trees, they're what we have most of here. So that's a big part of the landscape and the gardens are kind of built around the original apple trees here. But that's just an example. But there's getting the garden planted in the spring and then tending it in, during the summer. In the fall, it's slowing down and getting ready for the rainy season and the cooler season where we're harvesting or getting our firewood prepped. So there's this cycle of just being close to the land that inevitably just gets you into this four-season rhythm of things. In the summer, you're getting ready for the winter, and in the winter, you're getting ready for the summer. It's very much like that. Yesterday, we were gathering things up to ferment into a kraut. There's one pear tree here that just produces these incredible, huge pears. They all come down at once, and you can't store them. That's it. That's the moment of pears. So you get those all preserved as well. So I'm I'm really very connected to those kind of cycles here. Over the course of the past episodes of our gatherings and conversations, gardening has emerged a lot as a metaphor. And on rare occasions, also the act of gardening was at stake because we are in a way trying to discuss the future of cultural production and 
somehow gardening and its analogies in relation to tending, growing, these cyclical rhythms, and also a more long-lasting relationship with activity has been very much discussed. And I think that's, in a way, also very much related, as you just explained, what's going on in Salmon's Creek Farm. You've also dealt a lot with questions around gardening, harvesting, like I'm thinking projects like the Edible Estates. So how has it evolved for you and how did you reach to Salmon Creek? Well, my background is very much in architecture. And then there was this slow migration to my practice as an artist and away from making buildings. But there was a critical turning point when I moved from New York to LA many years ago, over 20 years ago, that took me into gardening very deeply. And it just totally captivated me. And I realized a lot of the issues I was interested in, in architecture, didn't have to be explored through buildings or performed through buildings in terms of creating environments. Mm -hmm. And there was something much more dynamic and compelling about gardens and the way that they're always living and changing and kinetic and requires this dynamic dialogue every day Mm -hmm. in a way that a building from the perspective of an architect doesn't. And there's something about the modesty of it and the possibility for anyone in the world to do it Mm -hmm. that I found really exciting. And yeah, at the beginning of my work with gardens, it was connected to my teaching and the schools I was teaching at and doing community gardens at the schools, the art schools, universities. And I was at the beginning very much interested in it as both a metaphor Mm -hmm. and a very literal act, a physical act that was both about survival and pleasure and, you know, a daily practice that puts you in direct contact with the landscape Mm -hmm. in a way that is urgent and we've lost and that I found to be something that I was just drawn to. So that really consumed me for a lot of my work for a long period of time. I did this series of edible estate gardens in 15 cities around the world over the course of about 10 years. And those gardens, <laughs> they required months of emails and budgets and schedules and proposals and exhibitions and documentation. And at the end of the day, all I got was three whole days with people outside planting a garden. And then that was it. That was the extent of my physical activity gardening on those projects, which after a while I found very frustrating. And I realized I want a daily life where I have that. And um, there was this strange disconnect between the life and work I was promoting and talking about and exploring in my work. And then what my actual daily life was like, which was 50% email (laughs) and a lot of just sitting in airplanes and traveling, which, you know, I'm happy I had that time. But after a while, I just realized it wasn't sustainable and it's not the kind of yeah. life that I wanted for myself. So coming to Salmon Creek Farm was really something I'd been dreaming about that whole time to a place like this where I could just be settled and rural, have a community around me and have just a very straightforward daily life connected to one piece of land mm-hmm. that I would make some longer commitment to where I would plant trees and build the soil and rather late in life, have a kind of committed relationship to a piece of land that was durational and 
I found it very frustrating, especially with certain art institutions where I would do a garden on site on the campus and it would only be there for a season or for a year, which to me is wrong, which defies the whole purpose of that kind of activity, which is slow and seasonal and requires a real long-term durational commitment. You don't just plant a tree and then take it out after a year. (laughs) The art projects also end up becoming very much similar to the architectural thinking that you were mentioning and maybe in a way being frustrated with. And the discipline of architecture also tends to treat the projects, the building, almost as if it finishes after construction, but actually it's when it starts. So in the case of architecture, buildings have a, a much longer life to live and they are to be inhabited and to be transformed through time. And that's something... Uh, very rarely mentioned in the field, in the discourse, and things like that. In the case of art, it becomes a kind of performative moment of display and then either stays as a documentation or disappears completely. But to come back to this idea of building and gardening, so you come across this former hippie commune, and how did that happen and how did it evolve? How did you tend it? What was like, because it's been now like four years, I guess, or more? It's been almost six years now. Wow. Yeah. I had a big show that was really a big culmination of a lot of the work I was doing that had a lot of different parts to it. This was at the Walker Art Center in maybe 2012 or 13. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like after that, my work was kind of done of that series that whole direction of work had kind of come full circle in a way to the museum in the city where I grew up that had really inspired me. And it was the culmination of of all of these projects. And it just felt like I was ready for some big new chapter. And yeah, so finally there was this moment to kind of stop and think about some next big thing. And uh, I just uh, kind of shut things down for a few months and just spent all my time searching for land was looking for something, not an empty piece of land to start something new, but some established homestead or farm or something that Mm -hmm. I could revive or bring new vision to. So yeah, a realtor sent a link to this old hippie commune that for a while, the 13 original, 13 shareholders from the original commune were selling it. And yeah, I feel like I kind of conjured it up in a dream somehow. It's so beyond what I could have imagined. It's just eight old, uh, very modest, hand-built, scrappy cabins in the woods, and then a few other little shacks that I found my first week here. And uh, it's 35 acres on the California Mendocino coast. Really nice climate for growing things, good water, really sweet community of old hippies, (laughs) and um, some nice young farmers kind of emerging in the area too. But um, yeah, so it's just been a long process of gradually fixing the place up and figuring out what its next chapter is and how I, how I want to live here, who else wants to be a part of it, how it's going to work. Mm, yeah. And you were mentioning in an interview that at some point throughout the processes of renovating the cabins and also thinking about building uh, new additions to the settlement, so to say, uh, you came to a point where you thought it didn't make sense to 
build a kind of sheltering structure in the sense that an enclosed structure, but to make the centerpiece of the whole setup more like a deck or a platform that that would allow activity to foster on it and promote gathering around it, but not necessarily enclosing the community. Yeah, it was really a revelation. I My background's in architecture, so I came to this place really hungry to build things. And that's been kind of the big revelation of this place is a few years ago, I started to pick up power tools and some skills. And now most of my work the last few years, three years or more has been carpentry, like using wood that we've milled up here, building addition to my cabin, working on all of the cabins. Basically, I'm doing carpentry most of the days. <laughs> and yeah, at the beginning, I was very hungry for a very conventional new building here that I wanted to design and build and mm. um, use whatever resources I had to kind of make my mark here in a pretty conventional way. And uh, spent years just coming up with all these diagrams and models and plans for a building and really struggled with what this place should be. And, you know, also learning from how it was functioning and what it really needed. Like, what did we need here? And I was visiting an artist friend who's come here a few times, Andrea Zatel, who is very connected to this community of artists that we know and the kind of work we're thinking about, who I'm very inspired by and have known for a long time. And she, knowing the place, knowing me and knowing the community, had just such great advice. She was saying like, you know, the building I was planning was next to the parking lot up front. And she was like, well, the last thing people are coming for here is to be inside of a building near the front entry parking lot. Like the whole point of this land is exploring the land, being outside, being with other people. And then she said, instead, you should just do all these outdoor spaces that you've been thinking about instead of one room, you know, mm -hmm. which is really what I was thinking about. So that was really good advice. And I kind of followed that immediately. It just was like so obvious in a way. So that's what ended up happening two years ago. We had earth moving equipment here for an entire summer. We milled up a lot of trees, built a huge dance deck, a big outdoor kitchen pavilion, building a greenhouse. There's this stepped south-facing terraced two-acre orchard garden here. And now half of it really functions as the communal outdoor space. And of course, now for the time that we're living in, it really is perfect. It would have been very problematic to have an indoor space. It would have been unusable now. Yeah. <laughs> and our communal cabin is now a private cabin. We don't even use that anymore. And we've transitioned from a community of people coming and going all the time of regular friends to more of a settled community. So in most mm -hmm. of the cabins now, it's full-time long-term people. And we use the outdoor dance deck for morning movement and the outdoor kitchen that overlooks that for daily meals. So fortunately, also, we're in a climate where most of the year it's usable. Yeah. We'll see how we do into the winter. But yeah, it's a very outdoor-focused place. Yeah. When it's chilly, you bundle up and, you know, it's just part of being on the land. <laughs> in general, like a broad term also, when I'm talking about my own work, I use the term setting a setting. So the, mm. the verb setting and then the setting the noun, mm, yeah, yeah, setting yeah. a setting. Yeah. But that phrase came to me in a almost like a semi-dream state. I was literally sleeping with the TV on and there was a, I woke up to a documentary about Timothy Leary. 
and he was talking about the LSD experiments and how important two notions were so important, which were set and setting. Mm. By set, he referred to the people you are together with during mm. the experience. Wow. And by setting, he was referring to the environment, the physical conditions that hosts the experience. And I observe in uh, Salmon Creek Farm, the setting is very important, but the set is also very important yeah. meaning the people who are gathering there and who've been passed through there, but also now in a more, as you mentioned, long-term staying there. Can you tell us a little bit about how the set comes together and maybe not necessarily who they are, but how it evolves, how it transforms and how do you bring people together? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned those words because... The first few years, and up until only very recently, my mantra here that I kept reminding everyone and telling everyone to kind of apologize for the state of the place is like, we're setting the stage, we're setting the stage. Like, we haven't come to where we're going with the place yet. There's this long period of setting the stage. Or I don't know what. I don't know what's going to happen on the stage, and maybe the stage isn't even a right metaphor, but, but I was very conscious of a long extended period of real labor required to bring the place somewhere where it needed to be to do what it needed to do, whatever that was. And that was years. And it's only really this past year, really around the time of the pandemic, strangely, where I could feel this shift that I'd been anticipating for so long from my personal constant obsession with setting the stage to a slow relaxing into life, like just daily life mm. here. And, you know, the privilege and pleasure of just being able to enjoy it and live with it to some extent. Because I tend to get very involved in projects and we'll let them go till it's done. And then I start a new project and that, that consumes me. So I've let myself kind of enjoy the place lately <laughs> in a way that I haven't before. I mean, enjoy it, like, you know, in a more conventional way where you're just not... I enjoy doing work, so... Yeah, no, I think that's crucial. But some people consider work, it's like, whatever, there's that line of work and play. But yeah, in terms of the set of people, it just started out as an open invitation to friends and friends of friends and students who were interested in this kind of thing coming to help. Had I come here in my 20s, I would be here alone. It would be a real struggle. But being in my mid-40s, I had this long kind of practice as an artist traveling around with a lot of connections all over the place and teaching so many places. So there was a wide kind of community of people to open this place up to. So people would come for first visits and check it out. And from all of those visits, there've been hundreds and hundreds, it kind of shook down into a community of around a hundred, I would say, who were mm. regulars, who were regularly in touch and would try to come out at least once a year, people farther away, just once a year, people closer by dropping in more often, but shorter stays. So up until last year, and that was the way it worked, we had kind of regular gatherings that would happen in the summer, writing retreat, different kinds of carpenter week, gatherings around different activities. That all was canceled this year. And it, there was kind of this immediate transition into something more settled, which has really become, I mean, one of the interesting things as soon as it has settled in, transitioned into a more settled community. It's been very much a queer space of queer community, mm -hmm. which I think has been interesting. I mean, that's kind of inevitable given who I am and who most of the community was 
coming through, but it's been exclusively queer. <laughs> Strangely, <laughs> there's only been a few straight people coming, but um, it's actually been a real pleasure for me personally to have it become more settled. I realized how much work it was for me to be constantly hosting new people. Mm. I mean, my life is really one of like administrator and housekeeper and handy person. Like I'm fixing faucets, I'm doing laundry, I'm receiving people at the front gate, I'm arranging for their arrival. It's just a million little details of hosting people in eight cabins on a big piece of land and two acre gardens. It's basically just, it completely occupies every ounce of me all the time. So with this settling into more permanent residence, there's been time opened up for me, hopefully to start writing, which I've already started to do, but that's what I'd like to spend some of my energy on now that time has opened up. And also maybe some moment to reflect. The pandemic was a partial experience for everyone, but I guess in your case, you probably thought to yourself that this was quite a good move. <laughs> that you did like six years ago. Yeah, it's um, it's very strange. I mean, this pandemic hits and it's just the luck of the draw of where you are in your life. Like people in transition have a harder time potentially or people just trying to start something up. Like it would have been disastrous had it been in the first few months of my life here. That would have been really difficult, mm. but it's just very fortunate that um, yeah. for me, it was convenient timing. <laughs> but it's it's really a place where it's very easy to be right now in this context. Yeah. Coming from the art world, which has been for a few decades, maybe not so much now, obsessed with like biennials and triennials, I think your practice and uh, what you are doing there is more like perennial. Yeah. And that's really inspiring. Uh, I really admire that. And also... You mentioned that there is a maybe a more performative aspect in the beginning, but now it's becoming more of a question of competence and compatibility with the surrounding and really life becoming moving itself beyond display or beyond something to be seen, but a kind of life situation, which is also, I think, very interesting for, I don't know how you frame it, but for this kind of work. So that's something I find quite interesting as well. You already touched on the mechanics of running the place, but I know there are also an ethos, the ecological concerns, how you live in that environment, what you do with waste and besides the crops and the growing. So I know that you are also interested in those questions as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about the mechanics, either in a more operational sense or in a more ecological sense? Yeah, I mean, that's fundamental. Just deep questioning about where resources are coming from here, where our waste is going. And it's something that everyone who comes here has to get used to. As we settle in a bit more, it's kind of easier to deal with. But our water comes from a spring on the land that we treat. Mm -hmm. So there's a very complicated water system that I run, that I maintain and clean every week. It's like running a small village, kind of. We have our food garden, which finally, after years of developing and terracing and building the soil and getting huge deliveries of compost, now we're trying to grow as much of our own food as possible. And then whatever surplus is being produced, um, putting it up for the winter. There's obviously compost that we do. And all the cabins have, except for one, have outhouses with humanure. So 
there's a bucket human or system that goes to a central human or site that moves every year. And then after three years, it just becomes dirt, very fertile mm-hmm. dirt. So our waste stays on the property. I'm trying to get us as close as possible to zero waste, zero trash, and even mm-hmm. zero recycling. That is really difficult. And I think now that there's fewer people here, um, everyone's maybe hauling their own stuff off-site and has to take more responsibility for it. It is possible to live with close to zero waste, but it takes a little more work. And um, mm. I mean, if you just shop in bulk and you don't buy things that have a lot of packaging, you know, we don't have trash pickup here. So everything that comes onto the property that doesn't have an afterlife here needs to be hauled out by someone here and then paid for it to throw away. So that's something I'm very thoughtful about. And I think the original idea was people would come here, dip into a certain way of living, and then bring back some of these principles back to their daily life or reconsider how they're living in the city right now. And now that's changed a little bit as we're kind of settling in. And I'm wondering how we can not become just a totally closed, isolated, hermetic community here and that we can share what's going on in some way. So like I said, I'd like to be writing. We're producing our first kind of product here, I would say. We've been collecting Mm. seeds all summer from about 30 of the plants. So we're going to be creating a seed mix that we'll be selling to kind of literally inseminate <laughs> inseminate the country with our seeds. And I think thinking of all the different things we can produce and put out into the world, that seems really appropriate. So I'm coming up with a seed mix that's just this crazy mix of everything we could gather for people who are just starting gardens for the first time. So you can just till up the soil wherever you are, take this really crazy mix that's no seed company would ever produce this because mm. it's our totally random mix of things. Some may be crossbred, a lot of inert matter, like not a very pure mix, but just a really wild mix of things that you can just sow out your door and then see what happens. And for first time gardeners, it would give them a sense of what's possible, what they like, what they don't like, and just learn a, a lot by what can come up on their land. So that's something that maybe we'll do by November, we'll get out. But, you know, thinking about what can radiate from this mm-hmm. place so it just doesn't become this kind of closed... Self-enclosed system. Yeah. yeah. On one hand, it needs to be a closed system, but of course, I totally hear you. And seed is also, in a way, works metaphorically. But I think it's also important that people learn from the experience there. So I would be like very eager to find out. I mean, on a totally parenthesis, all summer we were looking for something like that, the mixed seed oh, really? <laughs> situation. Yeah, yeah. It's impossible to find it. It's really? Always, yeah. I mean, here at least in Turkey. Yeah, no, it doesn't exist. No proper seed company would ever sell this. <laughs> so I'm not, yeah, it's interesting because I'm thinking of the seed mix. Some designers are coming up here in a couple of weeks to start working on the packaging. And I'm thinking of the seed mix like an addition to our project that's also real and can be used. Mm. Something that rides this line between being an art addition and um, that you could also plant. Yeah. And it takes it into a territory where... I don't know. I'm really excited about it. I think it's, you know, after years of thinking about what could radiate from this place, what could come out of here, it just seems kind of perfect. So Mm. we'll be trying to figure out what this is, how it works, 
you know. I mean, it's interesting too that you are thinking about it in terms of products, but also there is like serious knowledge production that's taking place there as well. So I think that's that's also maybe something I'm sure you are considering. And it's kind of a interesting mixture of uh, institution building, setting up a self-sustaining environment and community, but it's also maybe a project as a whole. And then it has the potential to have these potential various outputs. And I mean, you got me thinking about also questions around preservation when you mentioned just in the daily life, how you mentioned like the pear tree and then it needs to be preserved. So there's also that things we, most of us at least in the urban context have lost notion of and can definitely learn from. I mean, there's an increasing interest obviously on these things. Mentioning like how you learn and how you produce knowledge and how you learn from others. You already mentioned Andrea Zittel, but are there any other historical precedents that you've been building up from or learning from, either directly or indirectly, in terms of work or settlements or places, artists or communities? Yeah, not very directly now. I think I had many, many years of being very curious and just casually reading and visiting a few places. No, I mean, I can't think of any specific precedents in in the art world. I think so often places like this can be either very institutional, like artist residencies, or Mm. I don't know, I guess I was interested in this undefinable hybrid that's not very clearly defined either as a school or a residency or a farm or co-housing or a commune but it was kind of all those things and just sort of sitting with some undefinable nature of the place and being okay with that. But there's not any specific models. I think I came here with certain preconceptions about what I wanted. Mm-hmm. For example, I really like the idea of a dynamic flow of people in and out all the time, which really is impossible. Now we can have one or two cabins where we can have people for shorter stays, which is good. But A lot of it was just determined by the nature of the land. And like you're saying, the set and the setting, like the nature of the people coming here, what their desires are. Everyone who comes here affects the place in some way. And then the nature of the land itself and what possibilities it offers. So I I don't know. I wish I could say there were stronger precedents that I was drawing from. Sorry, what was that? Yeah. No, I was uh, adding the trees to the community as well. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, you're very aware of that here. Fantastic. So talking about people coming in and uh, going out, maybe it's a good moment to open to questions. I know one of the highly members, Daria, has previously written about your work and she was also drawing some connections between Gordon Meta Clark. I don't know if she has any questions or she wants to kind of expand on that. Thank you both for this inspiring conversation. I'd like to ask, it's obvious that site has a, has a site is a crucial element to your works, but I wonder how do you utilize time and how are you experiencing it through these projects? Is it a designed process for you or just happening somehow on the way? I just wonder that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the way I would interpret the question You know, I come from a long background of project-oriented work as an architect and as an artist making work almost like an architect. 
does commission projects. So you're invited to do a project. There's a site or a place. You visit. You come up with ideas. You present it. It gets executed, presented to the public for a certain duration, and then it's gone. Maybe if you're lucky, there's some archival material like a book or a video or whatever. So it's very finite, this period of time of the project, which always kind of frustrated me in a way, the artificial nature of that kind of constrained period of time because of the institutional structure, really, of a three-month show, for example, or something like that. And I think what is obviously very different about this place is that when I got here and started, I realized this is a long story. This is a something I've committed to for the rest of my life in a way. So you settle in for a very different kind of rhythm that's not so fast and you have to do everything, show everything right away. It's a very different way of being an artist and and sharing your work and you become more patient. And when I was practicing as an artist and traveling a lot, I would have 10 or sometimes 12 projects in one year. That was kind of unusual, but and then a lot of lectures and travel and it was kind of relentless. And I would have an email list and constant announcements and this is coming up and da 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 And um, now that, you know, when I moved here, that all stopped. Like I changed my email address. I stopped all invitations, stopped traveling, stopped lectures and teaching and just focused exclusively on this place, shut everything down. So this relationship to time changed really suddenly and it took me a long time to settle in. You know, I'm still settling in, into it, obviously. And everyone who comes here from a city and from that kind of life is bringing that relationship of time with them, I think. And it takes a while to settle them down. <laughs> but one anecdote I think of, too, is like I was describing to my father some project we were doing here, something, I forget what the activity was. I was like, oh, it's done so much work and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, well, at least, you know, once you're done, you don't have to do that again. And isn't it great that you can just finish it? And it's like, he had no idea what he was talking about because the point is here, usually every single thing you do, you do it again later, whether it's like the harvest or the pruning of the trees or the building of something that then has to be rebuilt or maintained or the laundry or the weeding or the watering or the firewood work, like almost every single thing you're doing here, you're doing again and again. And you do it the first time and you think, hmm, okay, I'm glad that's done. But then you have to surrender to this idea that it's something that's done and then done again, which is the nature of a practice, which is really historically in a very cliched, gendered way, women's work. Like that's something women, the kind of conventional place of the woman is that kind of work. And the conventional place of man's work has always been more monumental doing one thing and then that's it and I'm done. Like very much like this, more of the architecture model we were talking about. And I think that quote unquote feminine sort of relationship to work is very different. I mean, those gender roles are changing slightly, of course, but still they're with us in very powerful ways. And I think any person or specifically any woman who has had a life like that of doing something and then doing it again the next day and again the next day and again the next day where maintenance art of Meryl Ukeles, later Min Ukeles, how do you pronounce her name? Is a good example of this kind of work that celebrates that relationship to time, that rhythmic relationship of 
a daily practice that's performed again and again and again that is underappreciated and unseen because it's undone every day and then needs to be redone. So, so much of the work here is invisible. You only notice things when it's not done or not done right. And when it is done or is done right, you don't notice it. And that's really interesting. And I think that the invisibility of that is the kind of things I would want to write about, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of things you can't see here on a daily basis that can only be understood when someone tells you about it. (laughs) And so often I'm doing that when I'm giving someone a tour. I'm like, I did that, I did that, I did that. That used to look like shit. I just did that this morning, you know, because it's unseen. Yeah. I mean, you started off with the seasonal, but this was also exactly what I was fishing for (laughs) in my first question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's cyclical and it's not like not only seasonal, but it's also a very daily practice. Yeah. And I think maybe in response to Daria's question, it's also uh, less a matter of foreseeing an ending point, but keeping something going. And that's also why I said perennial. Exactly. There's no goal. There's no... Which is also the nature of a daily practice is there's no goal. There's no arrival point. There's no finishing the project. Mm. It's my intention that the place continue after me and it's in a trust. So it'll become something else after me, hopefully. Mm. So there is no like arrival point. However, I can say there are moments where Mm. I feel like, oh, this is it. This is what we're here for. And I have to remind myself consciously, like, there's always the next thing and the next thing. That's what I'm obsessed with. But there are moments of arrival where you just feel like, this is what we're here for right now. Yeah. And it's important to mark those moments in time. Interesting. I mean, I'm sure you had projections uh, when you first found the lot. And then probably those projections also kept transforming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been a very fulfilling year of seeing things come together, the gardens and a lot of the construction and fixing up the cabins. I did some renovation work myself in almost all the cabins this winter. Greenhouse, we're just finishing construction. And it is very satisfying. And then for me and for people who've been coming from the beginning to compare what it is now to what it was at the beginning is really satisfying. And yeah, I I do. I want to think more about this idea of set and setting. I think that's such a good point and something I want to kind of articulate better and to think about here the meaning of that because it is fundamental to understanding the place, I think, yeah. and how it works and what it is. It's not a building, discrete building, and it's not a discrete garden or a landscape, a complex interconnected network of all of these things constantly in touch with each other and affecting each other. And, and it's also an assemblage. It's like many different things coming into play, many different processes and many different actors and physicalities and material and living and formerly living stuff. Thank you, Daria, for the question. Uh, Do we have other questions? Hi, Fritz. (laughs) Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm good. I follow Salmon Creek's farm almost religiously. I feel like I'm part of the community now. (laughs) That's something Mm. I checked before I go to bed so it can lurk in my dreams, you know? (laughs) That's so cool. (laughs) So I have two questions. So the whole narrative is always in flux. So I'm curious that will it ever be complete or is this state of constant progress, more structures, more crops, more people, is the way forward? 
And then what? It becomes a village or an alternative city. So that's my first question, which is linked to my second. I'm curious about the power dynamics. So how does the legacy of the hippie commune influence the way you operate, if at all? Maybe a more blunt version of this question is, Are you the mayor? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your second question, that's a really tricky thing. And it's something I always struggle with. I think it's basically like a personality thing too. I think the reality of the place is I bought this piece of land with all these old cabins and invited friends and friends of friends to come join being a part of this kind of journey. And at the end of the day, I'm making all the executive decisions. Uh, That was a lot more straightforward and easy when it was people coming and going because the stakes were lower. Someone's here for a week or two or a few months at the most. So their engagement was limited and mine was fundamental and I kind of pulled everything together. Now that people are here longer, I think we'll have to start thinking more about how how that works. Yeah, I mean, I'm in control. (laughs) And I think in all of the work that I've been doing before, it was always collaborative and collective and engaged a lot of people. But the power dynamic was always hopefully pretty clear where I wanted to do something, a project, and I invited other people who wanted to do it with me. And we did it in such a way that we were sharing publicly what we were doing so other people could learn from it too. You know, the original commune was consensus driven. They made decisions collectively. They had Sunday meetings where they decided things together. Important, critical Decisions were made by consensus. Less important decisions were made by democracy rule or majority rule. And less important decisions, they said, were made by kind of anarchy. Mm-hmm. They, you know, not everything was consensus. And you think that was a failure on their part or? No, I think it was beautiful. And I think it was fundamental to what they wanted to build here. And just the economic model of it too. They were all shareholders. This place now... I guess it's also just economic privilege to me coming to this point in my life where I could have the freedom to just own this place, invite people to be a part of it, and then run it that way. I will say, however, on all of the projects I've done, the gardening projects, almost every project that I've done is engaged people in it in, in one way or another, these huge rugs that people were making together. I was always interested in finding out how I could create an environment, a platform, a situation, a project where there was enough sense of collective direction. You know, we were all heading the same direction, but within that there was enough room for people to feel free and to contribute and to alter the direction in some way or to affect it in some way. So I think it's a delicate dance of like how to create enough structure so that there's not chaos and so that there's some sense of order and organization and within it provide individual freedom for people to make their own space and time here. Fortunately, the physical infrastructure, the place allows for it because everyone has their own private cabin that's completely independent with their own bedroom and kitchen and Each cabin is completely self-contained in the woods and invisible mostly from the others. So no matter what else is happening here, you can always go back to your cabin and be alone and find your own space, or you can come to a communal space and be together. So there's always that, I think, which is very important. It would be very different if we were all in the same building together. But I think that autonomy of that always having the possibility for solitude here is really important. And 
I think it's just comes from a lot of experience with just figuring out that balance of, I almost think about it like gardening too. My interest in gardening, I have a very specific approach to gardening, which is having a very clear structure that's established of beds, planting beds and pathways. But when the garden happens, there's a lot of freedom for things to come up, for chaos in there, for wildness, for plants to grow in the middle of the path and to be okay with that. So within the structure, there's kind of this freedom, hopefully. Now about the future, is it always evolving or is there a stage that it's sort of complete? I don't think there's a place where it's complete, but I do think there's moments of dramatic change mm -hmm. and then moments where we settle into some rhythm or something else. So I don't know. We're in a turning point here because people are settling into cabins now for, you know, previously people would come and go for long weekends or a week or two or a very few people staying a, a month or more. Now, five of the cabins have long-term people in them. Two of them are free for shorter stays, like a couple weeks or a month. So it's very different. So I don't, I don't know what it's becoming. I don't, I don't know what it will become. I, I hope there's always room for a dynamic flow of people coming in and out like there was before. There'll just have to be less of that, I think. I don't know. I don't, honestly, at this moment, I don't have this precise vision of what it should be, what we're aiming towards exactly. It's just, all I know is it has the capacity to change at any time based on what's going on mm -hmm. in the world or with people here or with the landscape or whatever. It's like, I believe in surrendering to things like that and going with the flow and not having this preset, preordained idea that somehow this has to happen in a certain way. Cool. I look forward to someone's creek, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope you guys can visit sometime too. It's like that hasn't quite worked yet, but we will. We've been meaning to, but somehow never managed. But thank you for the question. I think that question of growth was uh, really interesting as well. And I'm curious about the economy because you touched on it, but I don't want to also block any questions that might be coming our way. So are there any questions? Hello, Fritz. So I got quite a few notes. I will try to improv to patch them all together. I've encountered a video on the Salmon Creek where you were emphasizing that neither the garden or any other plants nor edifices, commoners or cultural production that occurred within the settlement were focalized. But the combination of all these elements together mattered to you. It made so much sense to me as I had a remark made by a former Salmon Creek Commoner in my mind, where she was pointing that Salmon Creek was an active search for a new pattern of living that does not rip off the planet or any of her inhabitants. It made sense because with John's words, setting the setting is not about establishing a physical facility, but it requires constituents to resonate, engage and reflect with one another. And I'm referring also to the non-human constituents like animals and plants, which you thoroughly focalize in your past work as well. So in short, I wanted to know more about the newness of this living pattern for your case, if you agree with her at all, by the way. As I wanted to rather inquire on, like, for instance, how you position Salmon Creek historically. The first and uh, probably the most noteworthy example that came to my mind is Monte Verita, which occurred in the past century in Switzerland, around North Italy, in Ascona. Their social organization was also based on the cooperative system and and strove to achieve the emancipation of women, self-criticism, new ways of cultivating mind and spirit and unity of body and soul. They worked in the gardens and fields, built Spartan timber cabins, like found relaxation, dancing, and 
connect that thing. Like there are some similarities like within this newness of the pattern I'm just trying to point out. So as a rather formulated question, how do you interpret and reflect the past experiences and experiments until Salmon Creek as it looks like what you're trying to achieve is to enable the settlement to be a learning entity by itself? Do you aim to establish conditions so that Salmon Creek could make it in the long run without you as its foremost impetus? This kind of iterates with ask this question, but like mine is more or less like in terms of survivalism. So it might also refer to John's question. Like, like, do you think you could actually generate revenue? How are the essential needs are built with? Let's get back to the more historically inquired to start with. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for bringing those things up. It's interesting because I read about precedents or I think about significant precedents of intentional communities or communes or places like this that have a very specific agenda And I think here, this is my life's work now. I'm pouring all of my resources and energy and time and money into this place, full stop. So I do take it very seriously, but strangely, I feel like I don't have, I don't come to it with a very strong, precise philosophy that has been articulated yet. Like if you notice, that's not out there anywhere. And as a matter of fact, on Instagram, which is the most visible way the place is presented, there is nothing there at all. There's no website. There's no even statement, <laughs> you know, because I don't feel like there, I can have one right now. All I can say is the place was initiated by me. The revival of this place was initiated by me really as a very personal, selfish act of daily life that I wanted for myself. And then anyone else who wanted that too, there could be a place for them here. So I wanted a life previously having a life that was spent mostly on a laptop doing emails and traveling. I wanted a life mostly outside, growing my food, in touch with a a piece of land around me that was feeding me, that I was feeding, that living in a circle like that connected to a piece of land. That's all I wanted. And then everything that comes from that, the building considering the building you're in, the waste that you're producing, all these things. So it's, it's very pragmatic and practical. It's not very, I don't know, like I'm not a very new agey person at all. I'm very practical and I'm very just interested in the practicalities of that and the aesthetics, of course, too, I guess. So, you know, I take this place seriously as a place that will have a legacy and that has something to say. I'm not exactly sure what that is yet. And to compare it to any of these other places, it feels kind of strange at the moment because I don't, I would wonder how this place would be historicized or how it's seen from the outside now because it's been so private for me. I haven't talked about it a lot publicly, almost at all, only on very few occasions. So yeah, I'm an artist who like dropped out and bought a piece of land and now I'm like inviting other people to do it with me. It's like as much as I can say at the moment. It's very, (laughs) and I guess the main thing I can say about that too that makes me uncomfortable is all of my other work I saw as the model. Mm. I saw very specifically as prototypical or a model like that other people could pick up. And I don't know if I see that here. Like I don't think, the reason I hesitate to be more public about this place is because I don't see it as a model. It's not like, it's not possible for most people. And it doesn't make sense for most people. So to promote it as a model, I think is like ridiculous. Like, oh, just buy a piece of land and invite all your friends and 
everything will be fine. <laughs> it's just not, it's not something that I want to hold up as a model necessarily. I do see it as a place where people can come and have a place to reflect on what they want or how they want to live. And I can use writing I'm doing here to maybe further that. But I don't see what's happening here as like a model in that way. Mm. It's too rarefied. And I understand how rarefied it is and how privileged it is. And it makes me uncomfortable to promote what's happening here as like a way of life that everyone should do. <laughs> and it's, it's something I'm still coming to terms with and need to think more about and write more about. But the way it has worked up until now with people coming and going all the time, that nature of people having experience here that then they could take back to their lives was significant and is the thing I was really focused on. Now that that's not happening as much, I don't know. So we'll see. And do you have any certain trajectory in terms of kinship now that you have five extended stays? Do you conceive the regulars of the Salmon Creek farm more than just dwellers, let's say? Yeah. Well, you know, for whatever reason, it's kind of come down to kind of this queer commune right now, which has its own dynamics. Like in the queer community, for queer people, you kind of create your own family. And I think that's kind of what it is a little bit right now. It's a really nice group here. And there's more familiarity in the queer community with what it means to create your own family, your chosen family. When you grow up queer, immediately you're alienated from your family and from everyone around you. And you have to then find your own family. Not that you're, everyone's estranged from their families, but you have to build your own family in some way. And I've never really been interested in the close nature of the nuclear family of a husband and wife and a few kids in a private house, the kind of isolation that that creates. So of course, there are ideas here around alternatives to that. And that's something I enjoy. Thank you. And in case John and Asta doesn't drop by, <laughs> I would like to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should be in touch. Fantastic. <laughs> I think it's really interesting and I want to think further like the way you position Salmon Creek Farm differently to the rest of your previous works and, and saying that it's not a model. I think there's something to unpack there. I will also think about that. And even though it's not about model making as a whole, it maybe can generate models from within itself that could be either scaled up or multiplied because that's one of the ideas of model making is that you can either take it and replicate it or scale it up. But there is something very kind of reverse side of model making, which is also scaling things down so that you can have control over which is like a train model or the enthusiastic you know the or the architect model things like that is also sometimes about scaling things down so that you can maintain a certain control and that maybe brings us to a question like especially now that you touched that it's not a model do you consider it an artwork or is it work as a whole or is it more about life i don't know where the distinction lies but just the question emerged yeah i mean in all the work that i've done before there's not a hard line between life and work it's very porous so there's the projects i've done that are very much obviously an art project and then there's the parts of my life that are obviously just life and not part of my work. Mm -hmm. But I saw it as very porous and not very hard line. And it's kind of a gray scale instead of a line between 
my art projects in my life. So I feel like in all aspects, I'm interested in porous boundaries. I'm interested in gray scales and in spectrums, you know, I'm not interested in hard lines. So that's all I can say really in that regard. I'm, I'm interested in ambiguity. So I don't feel the need to say this is or is not a work of art. It's like you can draw the conclusions from everything that's come before about like what this is and how to interpret it or not or whatever. Yeah. So I'm, I don't worry about that too much, but I will say like I'm extremely disillusioned with quote unquote the art world mm. <laughs> and the way it functions institutionally and commercially. And I don't feel at all beholden to those systems that exist. I don't feel beholden to those structures or those hoops that you have to jump through to do things or have a career or whatever. I just, I feel like so much of it is useless and meaningless to me that I don't really care to worry so much about those categories. However, I do see a chain of history in art that I'm deeply interested in and drawing from and consider this to be a part of. So, and I think the reason that's important is because art functions at a different level from the mundane practicalities of daily life, obviously, where doing the dishes or cleaning can be both a pragmatic daily function, but also understood on a higher, more complex metaphorical level. Yeah. Things mean more than just what they are. No, I mean, I'm reminded of our first episode at Ahali, the podcast with Stephen Wright, and he was talking about the artistic coefficient and art sustaining environments rather than the art industries take on individual works and how they are historicized and how they are relying on kind of performativity. Instead, he was suggesting that in life, practice of living can also incorporate an artistic coefficient. And that makes it a work. And he was giving various examples about that. And I think your practice resonates a lot with that discussion. And I think we don't need to draw the line. And that's something I struggle with a lot. But there is a certain responsibility and that there is the fact that you claim that responsibility and you make it happen. And there is, a, in a sense, also a question of authorship that is at play and ownership in a kind of more, not materially, but uh, as like owning it. And there is that responsibility that you obviously strongly have and feel uh, towards this project, which in a way makes it your work, but to situate it or to promote it as an artwork is not necessarily a question, as you say, I agree. And that time will tell for all of us. Yeah, but now that I'm thinking about it more, I'm always reminded by the people around me how much I care about how things look <laughs> and how things are arranged. I'm I'm deeply concerned with how things look all the time and how things are arranged. And it's not like I'm aiming for perfection because I actually don't like perfection. But there is this struggle between finding this line between a comfortable space that people can feel comfortable in and feel welcomed into that also is highly considered yeah. and beautiful and thoughtfully arranged. And that to me is, is very important. And in that sense, it's not only the script or it's not only the kind of scenario or the storyline, yeah, the script, but it's also about forms and how the forms like material forms, how you set things up, but also social forms, like how you get together and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. 
So maybe we can close on that note. It was a really inspiring evening for us. Hopefully it was a worthwhile morning for you too. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It's so good to see you after so long. Thank you everyone for listening. The impossibility of longevity in the cultural realm, especially within art institutions, is now becoming a recurring topic at Ahali. With Fritz, we observe a self-initiated alternative to this impasse. What strikes me most is how Fritz is not detached, but completely embedded in this process of making Salmon Creek Farm possible. This means, at certain times, embracing the unclarity. But it also means letting the process and the people that come and go contribute to the fate of this settlement, with Fritz at the helm, clearly. I want to thank you for joining Ahali. Make sure to check out our episode notes to find out more about the works we discussed in this episode. You can also visit us at ahali.space and please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live gatherings and Q&A sessions with our guests. Hope to see you next time.